Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Good morning, church. How are y'all doing? How are you enjoying the sunshine? Some sunshine fans? No? Okay. No one likes the sunshine. Church at the Well. I should have known. Um... Last week, Adam launched our new series looking at the life of Joseph, Dub Joseph's journey. Tasha made this nice graphic for us, and we're going to be looking at the story which takes place in chapters 37 through 50 of Genesis, so it is a good chunk of scripture. This week, we're going to be looking at chapter 39, which is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, before we do, um, I'm just curious, by a show of hands, how many of are familiar with, not necessarily this specific chapter and story, but in general, the story of Joseph and the life of Joseph in the room? Okay, so a good chunk of people. Um, I'm excited to dive into this story with all of you. It's been a while since we've gone through an Old Testament narrative and a good chunk of scripture in this fashion, so I'm excited. So it's going to continue this morning, and then for the five Sundays after, you're going to get to hear some uh, conversations and sermons that will be started with uh, Adam and Abby as well. Um, If you missed last week, Adam gave us a lot of background information, and so if you missed last week for some reason, I'd encourage you to download the podcast and get all of that information downloaded into your brain and into your heart. It was a significant amount of background information, but I did want to just give you a quick summary of where we left off last week because it will help frame our conversation this morning. Um, Adam's sermon last week covered chapter 37, where we're introduced to Joseph, who at the time is 17 years old. He's just a little lad. And uh, Joseph is the son of Jacob, and he has 11 brothers. And we learn something about Joseph. He has dreams. And one of the dreams we're told that he has infers that at some point his brothers will bow down to him. A dream I'm I'm sure he did not mind having. Um, Any of you have siblings? You can get that. Um, Joseph does something curious to me. He shares the dream with his brothers. Uh, which is not curious if you have siblings. You'd understand, um, uh, hey, brothers, hey, sister, um, I want you to know I had this dream in which you were bowing down to me. Um, It sounds like a a typical sibling rivalry conversation in my household uh, between Anaya and Zia. Um, And we find out that Joseph is favored by his father, Jacob. His father loves him. Um, It's not supposed to be something that happens, but does happen in this household. He gets this really amazing coat, kind of multicolored coat, and it says, we're, we're told that his brothers hate him. And so his brothers are already kind of frustrated with him. He shares this dream, and then he has another dream, which then he chooses to share with them again. Um, and it's not only in this dream does it infer that his brothers are going to bow down to him, but his mother and his father as well. And there's a whole lot of um, frustration with Joseph around sharing the story. We learn that his brothers hate him, and they plan to kill him. So (laughs) um, it gets 
pretty serious, pretty fast. Um, they don't kill him. They say, well, let's just, we'll just throw him into a pit and we'll let him starve to death because that sounds more humane, right? No, no, this sounds horrible. And they're like, okay, we won't kill you. We'll just, we'll sell you into slavery and then we'll tell dad that you died and you're, we'll destroy your coat and we'll give it to him. We'll say that you're murdered by a wild animal. Um, and so Joseph is in mourning and Jacob, ha- or and jo- Jacob is in mourning and Joseph has been sold into slavery. And that's where we pick up this morning in chapter 39. Dr- dramatic, right? It's a dramatic intro to Joseph's journey and Joseph's story. But before we jump into chapter 39, I'd like to give us all a one-sentence explanation um, of the primary theme and intention of this entire narrative. And it's written by one of my favorite Old Testament theologians, Walter Brueggemann. Sounds fun. It looks, uh, looks cool. Can we get this uh, up? Walter Brueggemann. Uh, he's got two G's and two N's in his name. So you know you're, you're an OG if you've got two G's in your name. So one of my favorite Old Testament theologians, he says this. The narrative urges that the contingencies of history, the purposes of God, are at work in hidden and unnoticed ways. I love that. The purposes of God are at work in hidden and unnoticed ways. And so with that, uh, we're going to jump into our passage today. I'm going to invite up Logan, Awesome, and Alyssa, who are going to read um, verses 1 through 6. So Genesis 39, 1 through 6a. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became, became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Thank you. So these first few verses, they're setting the stage for the rest of the story. Uh, Where Adam wrapped things off last week, Joseph had been betrayed, sold into slavery by his brothers, and this story picks up where Joseph had been brought since. And so I'd like to highlight um, kind of the context that we see in these three, uh, or in these six verses um, that is going to be important for the rest of our conversation this morning. The three important things um, that I'd like to highlight, three words that we see that appear in this, in these first few verses. And those words are Egyptian, Yahweh, or uh, the four uh, Hebrew letters, which uh, Yod, He, Va, He, which we um, use as Yahweh, and this word with. And these are words to just kind of put on the shelf as we dive into the rest of the chapter. This first word, Egyptian. Joseph, 
we learn, is now a slave in Egypt. And this is an important element of the story that the narrator is emphasizing. He uses this phrase, Egypt or Egyptian, four times in these first few verses. And some of you might be guessing right now the significance of this detail, Um, but we're going to discuss that a bit more later. But for now, just kind of put put that on the shelf. It's important for the rest of the story. Um, The second word, Yahweh, or yod Hey ba Hey. When we read in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Lord, in Hebrew, is the divine name Yahweh. And it's only used in this chapter of the entire Joseph narrative, the proper name of the God of Israel, um, who's then, God is actually not revealed as Yahweh until later in the story when we turn to the book of Exodus and God reveals himself to Moses as Yahweh. And to me, the the narrator in his use of this word Yahweh speaks to Brueggemann's summary of the narrative's primary theme that the purposes of God are at work in hidden and unnoticed way. The narrator wants us to know that God is involved because what follows appears to be quite ordinary um, unfolding of human events otherwise. And by using this word, the narrator is emphasizing that God is at work in the story last um, this, this word with appears in a phrase that uh, occurs four times in this chapter as well. And it forms a framework for which the rest of the narrative is contained. And it's the phrase, the Lord was with. The Lord was with. And so we're going to discuss this in greater depth. But for now, it's important for us to, to underline and highlight uh, that This entire story in chapter 39 is framed by that phrase, the Lord is with Joseph. It appears four times, it's important, but also where it appears is important. The narrative is kind of sandwiched in between this idea. And so now I would like to officially invite Alyssa to read the rest of our story here. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her and lie, to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men in the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. 
Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. Thank you. Um, when I looked at the preaching schedule and I saw that I was speaking on the week where we were going to cover this story, my first thought was maybe Adam or Abby really have a burning desire to preach on this chapter of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Was I correct in that assessment or I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I just got blank, blank stares. Uh, I, I haven't preached a sermon on this passage before, but I have heard a handful of sermons on this passage, the, on, on the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, and I'll give you a summary of those sermons. Sermons go, go something like this. Be a person of integrity and flee temptation. Or as Lauren Hill put it, some girls, some girls are only about that thing so guys, you better watch out. I flipped that wrong, but yes. So, or, or guys, girls, you know you better watch out because some guys, they're only about that thing, that thing, that thing, right? <laughs> I did y'all a favor by not singing it. I'll say this about those sermons in that message. Be a person of integrity. Flee temptation. Uh, you're not going to hear me talk a bad thing about those sermons. Uh, those are good things. That's a good message. I'll give a yes and an amen to that. That's all right. But I'm not sure I have 30 minutes of that sermon in me. And I, I also suspect and have suspected that there's something more going on here in chapter 39, than just that. Be a person of integrity. Flee, tem flee temptation. And to get to that something else, we've already underlined and hinted at what that might be. A question. Where is Joseph? Where does this story take place? Egypt. What other stories in the Bible take place in Egypt? Is there one that jumps out to you? story of Moses, the story of Moses, which is the story of Exodus, the Exodus narrative, right? This series wraps up in Genesis chapter 50. This is where the Joseph story ends. When you turn the page, we land ourselves in Exodus chapter 1, which begins with the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt, crying out to God. This narrative foreshadows the story of the people of God in Egypt. But not only that, it highlights the type of people God is shaping and forming them into, whether they're in slavery, whether they're in positions of power, or in the wilderness. This story, my brothers and sisters, is much more than fleeing temptation. It's about much more than that. It's about the impossible or seemingly impossible, sustaining and preserving power of God at work in the life of Joseph in his own oppression. It's about how he fares 
in Egypt in the face of the empire? How does Joseph experience success in the face of the empire? This is a question that uh, Walter Brueggemann in his uh, uh, commentary on in the book of Genesis asks this way. How does Joseph, the dream bearer, succeed in the face of the empire? Chapter 39, to me, is about that question. And it's a question which requires us to engage the tension, the complexity, and the nuance that the narrative demands. There's a pattern in this story that's true of the entire Joseph narrative, but that we see here in chapter 39, that the purposes of God are at work in hidden and unnoticed ways, but they are certain and sure. In the first six verses, which Logan read, we see uh, this first thing that's at work, uh, that things are confidently settled. Um, and I believe we have a slide for this. And then in 7 through 20, which Alyssa read, we see also that life must be lived at great risk. Uh, one thing that stood out to me last week in Adam's sermon was that Joseph's story is in many ways our story. How many of you, and if you feel uncomfortable raising your hand, I'll raise my hand for this one. How many of you related to the family dysfunction that Adam spoke of last week. Um, yes, I understood that part of Joseph's story. Or how many of you have experienced moments where you haven't been able to see God and can hardly pray? And if you can, your prayers seem like groans at best. I know what that's like. To be a follower of Jesus is to live within the reassurance that things are confidently settled and to embrace that life must be lived at great risk. The tension that this narrative highlights is that both are true. Both are true. So what does it look like to be a dream bearer who lives in the tension of the empire? It requires, I would argue, a perspective that things are confidently settled and that life must be lived at great risk. Consider Joseph's response uh, to the temptation of Potiphar's wife. He, um, not only would Joseph have considered it a betrayal against Potiphar, but he also, we learn, would have considered it a betrayal against God in that one statement when he refers to it being a sin against God. How could I do such a thing? Um, in this one statement, we get a glimpse uh, because the, the entire narrative, we don't, oh, it's not always entirely clear where Joseph is at um, in his relationship with God. And in fact, God is seldomly mentioned directly by the characters in the story. The narrator brings up God from time to time, but not often. In this one statement, we get a glimpse that Joseph has a deep reverence for God and that God is forming his character throughout this story and even with that, regardless of Joseph's awareness of whether or not God is at work, uh, of, of what's actually happening, we see through the narrator that God is sustaining and preserving Joseph regardless of the actions of the other characters involved and even regardless of Joseph's 
actions himself. God is at work in hidden and unnoticed ways. And yet, we also see that for the dream bearer to live in the tension of the empire, the dream bearer's life must be lived at great risk. Joseph had said yes to the path and the dream God had given him at great personal risk. In, uh, in chapter 37, we see that Joseph has a garment taken away from him. He's thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. And here in chapter 39, Joseph again has a garment taken away from him. In chapter 39, I would, I would, I would say what we see is Joseph is not only maintaining his integrity, but he's maintaining his capacity to dream and to hold on to the dream that God has given him. He's able to say no because he knows what he has said yes to. Um, chapter 37, it didn't paint the best picture of Joseph, did it? He's not that endearing, right? He seems maybe at best a bit braggadocious, um, but the narrator, I think, does a good job at um, uh, highlighting kind of we see a more immature Joseph. Would you agree? We see a, a bit more of a, an immature Joseph in chapter 37. He wants his brothers to know, I had this dream, and in this dream, I was fantastic. Um, in chapter 39, we see perhaps a more mature, flattering image of Joseph. Uh, we're told that Joseph's good-looking, but the audience is endeared to Joseph not because of his looks um, or his appearance, but we're endeared to Joseph in his resolute courage to do the right thing at great risk to himself. Um, think about this for a moment. Uh, earlier in the week when uh, I was sharing my notes with Adam uh, about this week's uh, sermon, he brought up a fact that I thought was worth sharing with you or an observation that I felt was worth sharing with you. But consider, in chapter 37, in light of all of the injustice and suffering and pain that Joseph has experienced, that in chapter 39, we still see him choose to respond in a, a, a way in which he maintains his integrity and his right standing. Um, and he's facing, I think, uh, a situation in which perhaps the greater temptation would be to engage empire survival tactics, right? Uh, empire survival tactics. If I just go along with this, um, look at what has been done to me. Why would I now do the right thing when all of these things have happened to me? And yet that's not what we see Joseph do. Um, he doesn't engage the empire survival tactics. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, and uh, I just got to do what I got to do. No, we read um, that in the face of temptation, Joseph fled. Uh, that word fled is the Hebrew word vayanos. Can you say that word with me? Vayanos. It feels good, uh, and I want to share that word with you, not just because it sounds good, um, but it's a verb that describes, it's, describes a spontaneous and abrupt withdrawal. Joseph was able to say no and to say no immediately because he had already said yes 
to the purposes of God, no matter where that led him, whether into slavery or prison or even in the face of death. This is about much more than maintaining his integrity. I would argue that this is about maintaining and holding on to his capacity to dream, which leads me to a question for all of us this morning, and I believe we have a slide for this as well. What dreams and purpose has God given you or would like to give you? And I'm not going to presume to know what dreams and purposes God has placed or wants to place on your heart, but I do know that God desires a people who would be people of the dream. And to be a dream bearer requires us to live within, to live within that tension. Things are confidently settled and Life must be lived at great risk. And I'd encourage you as you ponder, as you wrestle with these questions in that tension um, to consider something this week as you think about that question. I would argue you don't need an overtly spiritual awakening to discover God's dreams and purposes for your life. Uh, In fact, um, we prayed and we sang the Lord's Prayer this morning when Jesus invites us, in which, which he does with all of us, when Jesus invites us into the kingdom of God, we inherit the dreams of the kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, our prayer then becomes the dream and the purpose that we bear. And so another way to ask yourself that question, just still there, awesome. Another way to ask yourself the question, what purposes and dreams has God given you or would like to give you, would be to answer the following. In God's kingdom, there will be blank. Or in God's kingdom, there will not be blank. And you might beyond to something when you can fill in that blank with something that uh, burns within you. Um, Anne shared about her passion for creation care and God's good creation. To me, that would be a blank that fits in really well right here. Or, Or another example would be, in God's kingdom, there will be food and water for everyone. Or, In God's kingdom, there will not be war and suffering. God's desire for you is to be a dream bearer. And so maybe you already know. Maybe you already know some of the ways you'd like to fill in those blanks. Maybe you are somewhere else along the way of unearthing the dreams and purposes of God for your life. Wherever you are, I'd encourage you this week um, to reflect on how you would fill in those blanks. Uh, I'm going to read the last few verses of chapter 39 as we conclude. Uh, Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph. This is after he's now been thrown into prison and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. I've mentioned it numerous times. 
perhaps too many times, the tension in this chapter that exists between things are confidently settled and life must be lived at great risk. And the risks that we are to face as dream bearers are likely different than the risks Joseph faced. And yet, we face empire risks and empire narratives all the time. Uh, I'm not talking about like culture war stuff here, but things like, uh, one thing I think about is the value that our culture places on productivity, where our value is connected to our ability to produce and to generate wealth in order for us to accumulate things. That's an empire narrative and temptation in my mind, which leads to all sorts of other narratives. Uh, last week, Adam spoke of another one, the, the empire narrative and the danger of comparison. Both looking and envying what others have or boasting of what you have in, comparing, uh, in, in comparison. Are, uh, are there any others you can name? Uh, it's not quite a rhetorical question. If you have any, you can throw them out there. Any other narratives, empire narratives, empire risks you're tempted to believe? Okay, we'll move on. Lastly, while there is a tension here between things that are confidently settled and life must be lived at great risk, the narrative is framed by the certainty of God's work in the midst of it all. The narrative ends with the frame that we began with, which is Yahweh was with Joseph. So it is a tension, but we can be confident that God's purposes are sure, even though they are often hidden and unnoticed amongst the ordinary movements of life. Can I share a story with you as we conclude? Um, in 2013, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give you dates because I don't really know the dates off the top of my head. <laughs> it's Sunday, and uh, I still have Easter hangover. Is that, is that okay, Adam? Am I allowed to use that excuse today? Okay, I'm not going to use dates. Uh, Luann and I began the process of uh, realizing a dream that we had in our hearts as we had been thrust into a situation where we became parents. And we started the process of adopting our daughter, Anaya. And when we began the process, uh, it started with a lawyer and money. And uh, things were supposed to go smoothly, and they did not go smoothly. And we were supposed to spend a certain amount of money, and we spent much more money than that certain amount of money. And it was an incredibly uh, frustrating experience um, that led to actually like a lot of anxiety I had for the first time in my life experienced um, an, an anxiety, like a panic attack or, or an anxiety attack around this specific situations, and certainly one of the most um, difficult, and I'm telling you just a, a, a snippet of this story because I want to make sure that I wrap up. Um, it was a very frustrating um, season uh, for us, and we, we experienced a lot of stress, anxiety, frustration, and um, 
and we spent a lot of money, and they didn't go anywhere. There was no movement, and we eventually moved into a long period of time, years of time. Um, I know, I don't know how long, more than five years, we'll say, of what I would call kind of just like purgatory. There was nothing to be done um, other than to pray, which I did not find myself doing often because I did not find it enjoyable to pray about a situation that was had no movement to it. There's no going on. Um, and then February 2020, Luann and I decided, um, kind of independently, but also together, um, which I think was probably God at work in our hearts without us knowing it, um, that it was time to start the process again. It was a very frustrating process the first time, and we were not looking forward to it. And so we let a handful of friends um, know that we were starting the process again to pray for us, because the first time, more people knew, and everyone was asking us about it. It was not enjoyable. Um, we started the process February 2020. We had a sit-down meeting with our lawyer. March 2020, y'all know what happened. In March 2020, uh, we were not able to have any sit-down conversations with lawyers, so we had emails and phone conversations with our lawyer, and we were given a timeline, and we paid money again, and we were told this will happen, and this will happen. And, and the timeline, if you know this, if you've dealt with anything legally, there's not really a timeline. It just is um, you get billed monthly, and you pay the bill. And um, we were given a timeline, and certain milestones never happened, and we were just kind of like curious. And then in December 2020, we got an email from the uh, court. I don't know. I didn't know the court sent emails, but the court sent us an email, and we read it, and we sent an email to our lawyer and said, hey, this, this email sounds like, like the adoption, that there's nothing left to do. The adoption has happened, has been processed. And uh, our lawyer said, yep, you read that correctly. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> I had other friends who had 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 gone through the adoption process, and normally it ends with, normally there's, you have to show up to court at some point, and normally it ends with uh, friends and family be invited to the court, and um, the kid gets to hit the gavel, and it's, it, there's a celebration, and, and there's all of this um, kind of movement around it. There was no movement. Uh, in fact, we got an email that we weren't even quite sure if we were reading correctly, and um, it was the realization of a dream that had begun many years earlier. And I bring that up because all of it was completely ordinary, fantastically ordinary. And yet, God was at work throughout it as we look back in hidden and unnoticed ways. And it speaks to this um, that things are confidently settled. The dreams and purposes of God are confidently settled. And we see that here in this narrative. And so, um, since you got a lot of Brueggemann in today's sermon, I'm going to wrap up with a poem from Brueggemann in his book, Prayers for a Privileged People. It's entitled Dreams and Nightmares. And while I read it, uh, I'm going to invite up the band as well, uh, because this poem is in many ways a prayer. Um, and so in lieu of a prayer, I'd like to share this poem with you. 
uh, Dreams and Nightmares by Walter Brueggemann. Last night, as I lay sleeping, I had a dream so fair. I dreamed of the holy city, well-ordered and just. I dreamed of a garden paradise, well-being all around and a good water supply. I dreamed of disarmament and forgiveness and caring embrace for all those in need. I dreamed of a coming time when death is no more. Last night, as I lay sleeping, I had a nightmare of sins unforgiven. I had a nightmare of landmines still exploding and maimed children. I had a nightmare of the poor left unloved, of the homeless left unnoticed, of the dead left ungrieved. I had a nightmare of quarrels and rages and wars, great and small. When I awoke, I found you still to be God, presiding over the day and night with serene sovereignty. For dark and light are both alike to you. At the break of day, we submit to you our best dreams and our worst nightmares, asking that your healing mercy should override threats, that your goodness will make our nightmares less toxic and our dreams more real. Thank you for visiting us with newness that overrides what is old and deathly among us. Come among us this day. Dream us toward health and peace. We pray in the real name of Jesus who exposes our fantasies. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.